Romans chapter 12. We're looking at verses 9 through 13 today. If I get that far. Maybe wound up a little bit this morning about some things, but uh, if we get that far, we're going to do that. Let's read together. It says this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful and zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. On the God Questions website, there's an article there that says, is entitled Nominal Christians. And they define nominalism in this. They say it's a possession of a baseless name, title, or description. A nominal presidency, for example, is one in which the president is nothing more than a figurehead. That reminds you of current culture today. A nominal vacation is one in which vacationers must still work. Nominalism has to do with empty formalities, things so-called and meaningless labels. And nominalism, they go on to say, exists in religious circles. Nominal Christians are churchgoers or otherwise religious people whose faith does not go beyond being identified with the church, Christian group, or denomination. They are Christians in name only. Christ has no bearing in their lives. Nominal Christians may attend church and Christian functions and they self-identify as Christians, but it is just a label. They view religion primarily as a social construct. They do not allow it to require much of them in terms of morality or responsibility. Nominalists take a minimalist approach to their faith. One of the reasons that people are nominal, and they say it because religion is easy. It doesn't require a changed life. A nominal Christian can point to membership in a church as evidence of the salvation. Church attendance and participation in routines, activities, and programs becomes the measuring stick rather than a changed life, a new heart, a love for God, and obedience to the Word. So in this passage today, Paul gives us this blueprint of how not to be a nominal Christian. But how to be an everyday Christian, which is the title of this sermon. In other words, what is the lifestyle of a Christian? Paul's going to answer that today. He's giving out ethical injunctions, imperatives, if you will, that he is saying to them in staccato fashion. Here's what it means to be a Christian. And these should be the everyday experience of the Christian. So let's look at the first one. In other words, the, it says in verse 9, Let your love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast what is good. So, the everyday Christian, now listen, the everyday Christian practices love and hate. Listen, the everyday Christian practices love and hate. First of all, the very first one that is mentioned is Love. It's the foundation for every other imperative that rests upon. The Christian should be the person who loves. That's a given. And that should be without hypocrisy. That should be without pretense. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Let it be 
genuine. But what kind of love is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be the Christ-like love that Jesus Christ gave to us and what Jesus Christ showed throughout his life. So what is Christ's love? What does it mean? What's encapsulated, encapsulated in Romans, I mean, in 1 Corinthians 13. You remember it. You probably had it read at your wedding. Uh, whatever it may have been, this is what it says. Love is patient and kind. What was Jesus? Patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Same thing. Christ did not envy. He did not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. What is the practice then of the Christian? It means that we are to do all these things, be these things, and that that love never ends. In fact, we understand it, that love went all the way to the cross for us. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. This is supernatural love. It's a Spirit-filled love that comes through the filling of the Spirit. It's to be genuine. It's not to be plastic. It's not to be fake. It's to be absolutely real. So we understand if we're going to be an everyday Christian, love never ends, so therefore we're loving every day. But Paul tells us also to hate Listen to what he says. It says, abhor what is evil. Hate what is evil. In fact, the Greek word is the strongest possible Greek word to be used to denote hate. Now, it does not mean to dislike a little bit. It means to actually loathe. Now, to loathe means to feel intense disgust for so what are we to loathe? What's he say? Hate or loathe what is evil. Now we have to define evil. Because evil means different things to different people. Some people see Halloween as, oh, that witch, that goblin, that demon, that skeleton, oh, that's evil. But folks, understand what evil means. Evil is anything that assaults the holiness of the character of God. That's what evil is. It conveys the meaning of that which is injurious to someone else. That Greek word actually means, and some translations say this, they say, abhor that which is going to cause injury to someone else. Injury. Now I want you to think about that. That evil that is injurious affects our relationship with God. It's any evil that separates us from God. We are to loathe that kind of thing that can lead to a separation of a person from God. Which therefore means this. I don't know if you've been around, but you've seen things on TV, you've heard people say something that way. They, someone looks at them and they see them coming. Some people will say, I see you. Stop hating. 
Stop hating right now. Stop that. We have all that kind of things going on. But folks, we have to reject that when we speak out against that which God calls sin because that sin is going to separate that person from God. We have to speak out. Christians, we have to speak out. We can't sit by, sit idly by anymore. We have to speak up and speak out that which God calls sin, and we need to call it sin. That's what we have to do. For example, I didn't know, know if you know this, but I just found this out the other day. Communication from one of our congressmen that there is a bill before the Congress to make it a law that we recognize 22 di di different genders. Isn't that a relief? New York has 31. So this is only going to be 22. Isn't that wonderful? And we sit back and we go, oh my goodness gracious, what's the world coming to? What's happening in that situation? Well, here's the point, folks. Understand this. They will come after churches, according to this bill, come after pastors, come after Christians, if you don't recognize the pronouns of those 22 genders. They're setting this up as an attack. Now you've already heard in the in the news just last uh, two days ago that the Biden administration is conducting a federal investigation against the Southern Baptist Convention over some of the sexual stuff that the convention's already handled that they had because they had some child abusers within places and they tried some churches tried to cover those kind of things up. Well, now that the Biden administration has decided they're going to be the arbiter of this thing and they're going to do an investigation, what are they going to do? They're probably going to come in and be able to say, this is what you have to do to be able to do this. Government telling the churches what they should and should not do. This is exactly what's going to happen in this situation because if we don't identify those folks according to their personal pronouns, we could be in trouble. We could be then shut down. This is government intervening where government, government should not even go. Folks, this is a situation that we have to understand is before us. That is an affront to the living God. And we should hate, loathe that kind of legislation because it denies, first of all, the God who made them male and female and who they made them to be, he made them to be. It also grants this mindset that says this, I am my own God and I can declare who I am in any form, in any gender. That is idolatry because you just set yourself up a God that's in your own mind. Next, it leads children absolutely astray and fosters an attitude of rebellion against God. Don't think this is pertinent to us. This is what I just found this morning. Came across my little phone, my little media device. Toyota sponsors lesson on the first steps of drag artistry for children. 
Drag artistry. What is that? How to be a drag queen. Sponsored by Toyota. And it also featured a performance from a jack drag performer in a workshop on the first steps of becoming a fabulous drug performer. The event was called Models of Pride, hosted, well, this explains it, by the Los Angeles LGBT Center, and was intended for those 24 years and younger. No minimum wage was, age was listed on the website. They called it the world's largest free conference for LGBTQ plus youth and their allies. They hosted breakout sessions that included one title that drag isn't a race. That focused on learning the history of drag queens and taking the first step to becoming a fabulous drag performer. Another workshop entitled, Where Do You Fit In? Exploring the LGBTQ community subcultures in order to find your chosen community. They're not the only ones that sponsored it. It was also Wells Fargo, Union Bank, City Bank, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, First Republic Bank, and U.S. Bank, Boeing, American Airlines, Comcast, NBC, Universal, Hasbro, Toys, so it tells you what kind of toys they're going to be coming out with soon, Nike, Target. They know in my family that we don't shop at Target. When they made the rule that women can, men can go into women's bathrooms. And so therefore, this is another reason not to. Folks, this is what I'm trying to get us to understand. Is this. The Bible says we are to loathe that kind of thing. Excuse me, let me take a commercial break. This thing's not working anyway. I've got it going off, so it's important. What's working here, right? It's not working anywhere. So I'll stay right here. All right. So what are we to do in response to that? He tells us in the next part of the verse, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. Everyday Christianity is clinging to what is is good. That little root word where it says hold fast or your, your version may say cling to what is good. It comes from the root word meaning to glue. To glue. You've heard the term from Jesus and from Moses. For this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. Be glued to the wife. The picture is a picture of oneness. It's as if you take two pieces of paper and you smear a little Elmer's glue on one and you press two paper, line up the corners and press them together, let it dry, and you almost, you can see that it, it exactly looks like one. When you try to take it apart, it's going to rip, it's going to tear. That's what we're talking about here. We're to cling to that kind of thing. That's what we are to do. Cling to that which is righteous, that which is holy, that which is good. They don't let go. The everyday Christian does not let go of what is good. They actually fight for the good. 
That's why we have to be involved in this as well. We have to actually fight for the good. We'll talk about that when we get over to chapter 13, when we deal with let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And we talk about the transfer of authority. We're going to talk about these kind of things where we cannot be passive when it comes to these kind of things. So when you think about what is evil within our culture, have you thought much about what really is evil in our culture? Have you thought much about what is really good in our culture? But still we have this imperative. Hate the one, love the other. Hate the sin and the effects of sin. But show love to those who need the gospel and the deliverance from sin. You exhibit love. You manifest love. But not the condonance of the sin. We don't condone it. We speak to it. And we do it all in love. There's an old song that kind of speaks to that last thought. It was also written in a really turbulent time of the 70s where people were in rebellion. There were, believe it or not, there were riots back then, early late 60s, early 70s for those who did not grow up in that era. And one of the songs that came out was a song called They'll Know We Are Christians By Our Love. Some of you older ones know this. It's called We Are One in the Spirit. Y'all remember that song? We used to sit around and sing it in youth group. You know, it's all along with Kumbaya and everything else like that. We sing, sit around, hold hands, singing. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity will one day be restored. And though we are Christians by our love, by our love, and though we are Christians by our love. Jars of Clay just picked this up and started performing this in their concerts. You can see it on YouTube if you want to, if you want to get that understanding. But this is exactly what Jesus said. They will know, what 1 John says, chapter 4, they will know that we are Christians by our love. So we are called to loathe. We are called to hate the things that God hates. Hate the things that Jesus hates. Loathe them. But we are to show love in our dealing with people. Not spouting hate. But instead showing love even though we will not condone sin. So now Paul begins to shift in his imperatives. That was towards the outside world as well. But this is towards believers. Notice what he says in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. In other words, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. This is a word, you know it, brotherly love, Philadelphia. This is where we get the city of brotherly love. This is what he's saying. This should be a common family love. Just like moms and fathers and siblings and children, they all share with one another. We're to be kind, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit. We're also to give preference to one another. This is called walking in humility. So everyday Christians walk in humility. 
But that Greek word also carries with it the deflection of honor, the deflection of honor towards oneself, and then putting it on someone else, giving them preference is what it means. He's saying this in this, notice what it says, outdo one another in showing honor, respect. Outdo them. In other words, reminded of a story about a woman who goes to her doctor. She is pregnant. Goes to the doctor. The doctor says to her, we have made so many technical advances in our medicine that you get to choose the character of your child. And we have shots for her. What would you like? He gives her a whole list of these things and she says, I want kindness, I want respect, and I want honor. So he says, okay. Fills the syringe, gives her a shot. She goes away. Ten months later, she still hasn't had that baby. She goes and takes a sonogram. She finds out she has twins. Twins in the womb. Twelve months later, no babies. Eighteen months later, no babies. Twenty-four months later, no babies. Thirty-six months later, no babies. And she is humongous. And she says, doctor, take these babies. They schedule the C-section. He's in there and he hears some muffling going on before he makes the incision. He puts his ear down towards her stomach and he hears the twins. After you. Oh, no, no, no. After you. No, no, please. After you. They were respectful. They were kind. They were honoring one another. What does the Lord say to do? Outdo one another when it comes to this kind of thing. What we're to do is then with each other is to honor one another, to respect one another. This is everyday Christianity. We respect one another. We honor them. We do what is right in the sight of the Lord each and every day. I went to a seminar and one of the as on marriage, one of the uh, the teachers, one of the psychologists there said, if you just practice honoring your spouse, things will go well. So when they walk in the room, old oh men, here's what I want you to do. It was kind of humorous, but we got the point. He said, when your wife walks in the room, you go, oh, hello, darling. I am so honored to be in your presence. Thank you for gracing me with being my wife, preparing things for Loving you like you do. Oh, how I honor you. It got a little hilarious at times with the cackles and the stuff that's going on, the people looking back and forth saying, that, that will never happen with my husband. But the point was, grant honor to the wife. Grant honor to the husband. How much more should we do it for every Christian, as everyday Christians should do for one another? We are to honor one another. Outdo it in showing honor. Outdo ourselves in walking in humility because really when we're doing that, what we are doing is showing humility that the other is greater than we are. We don't have this big self-aggrandizement of ourselves, but we show humility. Verse 11 goes on and says this, don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, Serve the Lord. Something the old King James Version says, don't be slothful in business. That's really not a 
great translation. It basically means don't be slothful in the things and the pursuit of God. Pursue them with passion. Pursue them with zeal. We are to be fervent in the Spirit. I believe this passage is talking about the Holy Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to burn passion and fire within you that your activities for God are to be Spirit-led, full of vigor. And we're to have the attitude of servanthood. What did the Bible tell us about servanthood? This, it's all full of it. Every time that Paul writes, he says, I am a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means I am a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever my Master says, I will do. And here's the instructions that Paul has given to us. If we're going to be everyday Christians, then we serve the Lord with zeal. Lastly, in this, understand what he says. As he says, verse 12, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. This is where he's saying to us, you need to be hopeful. You need to be patient when trials come. And then pray. Now, biblical hope, just real quickly, I want you to understand this. Biblical hope is different from the hope that we reflect in our society and culture and speak of every day. That reflects uncertainty. It's kind of like this. I hope I win the lottery today. It's really hard to hope in that if you don't play it. But if you play the lottery, it's a, and says, I hope I win the lottery. That's uncertainty. Christian hope is absolutely different. It's built upon the certainty that God will bring to pass what He says He's going to do. And we know that we all go through trials, and that's why Paul says be patient with those. Those trials point to a hope that we have in the future that we will not have those, hope, those trials in heaven. And therefore, we can hope in those kind of things. We really can we have to focus on the hope. Why? Joy vanishes when our hope vanishes. Joy will vanish when our hope vanishes. We must fan the flame. Now listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. He says, since we have that same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, so that the great, as grace extends more to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of the Father. So we do not lose heart. We hope, in other words, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
announcing are eternal. In other words, we look to our hope, which is Jesus Christ, our hope of heaven, which is a certainty. We look at these life afflictions that are going about us and causing us much chagrin day to day, but we look at it and we say, you know what? This is preparing us for this eternal way of glory that is beyond comparison. So we must look at hope. We must fan the flame in that so that our joy will not vanish because our hope vanishes. We must set our eyes and our minds and our attitudes on the promises of God. That's what it means to be an everyday Christian. Love without pretending. We're to then be constant in prayer. Glued together with it. That's that glue. You see, this is prayer on the fly, as I call it. Notice what he says. Rejoice in hope, be patient in truth, pleasure, be constant in prayer. This is an attitude of asking God constantly and over and over again. As you are going, you are praying. When you meet that light affliction, that trial, you throw up that prayer. You send it up like a rocket. You say, oh Lord, help me in this. You are praying constantly. You hear something about a struggle from someone else or through somebody else, and then you pray at that point in time. As you're walking through life, you are constantly praying. That's the activity of an everyday Christian. They just don't say, I'm going to pray on Sunday, and that's good for me. No, the everyday Christian is praying all the time without ceasing, as it says. And folks, understand this. We are called to times of private prayer, but don't let that called private prayer if you miss a day or two. Don't make that a potential to walk in guilt during the day. If you are praying, if you are sending up those prayers, if you are asking God to help you with this life that can only be done because of the Spirit of God living in us, it's impossible to live without that and be a Christian without that, then you are praying. You are praying without ceasing. You are moving towards the Lord in prayer, hoping and praying and believing that you're going to do exactly what these few verses are saying that you can do and should. So the question now comes is this, as we close and prepare our minds and hearts to sharing the Lord's Supper, is this. Are you nominal? Are you ever dead? Are you nominal? Are you ever dead? Are you a Christian in name only? But not practice? I dare venture to say that that is true. You say, yeah, I'm a Christian and you're trusting in something that you did a long, long time ago at a VBS, at a Sunday school, at your house, wherever it is. You've prayed a prayer. You've stated, yes, I'm a Christian. You were born in the you, born, you were born, you were put in the nursery, you're on the roll, you're on the cradle roll, you started there, but nothing really has changed in your life. May I state emphatically, you might want to test your salvation to see if you're in faith. Because everyday Christians exhibit the true life and the true marks of Christianity. Nominal Christians, which do not have any fruit of the Spirit, basically means 
lost. I can't put it any other way. I can't basically say, oh, I just need to step over that. You have to go through that. You have to understand there's a difference between those who say they're Christians and those who actually are living the Christian life each and every day. So if you're nominal, we pray this morning that you would trust Christ as your Savior who came and died for you to change your life, not to give you an extra little name on your resume, I am a Christian, but that you are changed because of Him. That you've recognized who you are and what your sin has done to separate you from, from Him. You need to be born again. Repent of your sins and know that your sins has offended a holy God. He calls it cosmic treason. But He's also sent us a way where we can have our sins forgiven. I plead with you to have your sins forgiven. Trust in Christ today. For those of you who are everyday Christians, keep it up. Keep it up. There are that that is there is that responsibility that we must have to grow in Christ. It just doesn't come by osmosis. We have to go forward in our faith. Keep it up. That's what the Apostle Paul was trying to get over to us. Keep it up. We come to celebrate the table, basically saying this life that was given for us allows us to live this life now as everyday Christians. And so if you are a Christian, you know, you know without a fact, uh, without a doubt, that you have been changed by the love of Christ. We invite you to participate with us. We do. I ask you, however, that if you are Christians and you have children here, and those children have not come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, please Please don't give to them these elements to say, okay, you can go ahead and do this. I know you're not a Christian, but go ahead and do that. That defiles this kind of thing. This is for believers. This is for those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. So please, please be careful in that. But we do invite everyone that proclaims the name of Christ. You know that you are a changed being because of Jesus Christ like to take of this supper with us as we can celebrate His life, what He did for us on the cross to make us new creations as we go out and we practice this every day. So would you join me now as we prepare?